Okay, you, you did very well. You did very well waving your palms. And I could single out some who were extraordinary, but I don't want to create a sense of competition. Yeah, good job. Save us. Save us. Hosanna, which means save us. Save us from what? Well, the Palm Sunday crowd, we usually think, was saying, save us from the Romans. Save us from Roman oppression. Um, others might say they were saying, save us from sin. I think it's kind of a degree of theological sophistication to be in a crowd and say, save me from my sins. I just don't think people would say that. We might say, save me from their sins, save me from Chris's sins, but not from mine. What would we say today if there were a crowd in a procession today? You know, Hosanna, save us from what? Republicans? Democrats? The stranger? The other? It kind of depends where we are on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Save us from hunger and thirst. Save us from unemployment and violence. Save us from disease and illness and homelessness. Save us from loneliness and pain and self, low self-esteem and non-self-actualization. Save us from emptiness and death and meaninglessness. To talk of what we want to be saved from is to take a trip into what we fear and what brings darkness to our lives. We want to avoid these trips into fear and darkness. We try to distance ourselves and distract ourselves from these things. We don't want to think about them. We don't want to talk about them. We don't want the preacher to talk about them. To talk about these darknesses in our lives, these fears in our lives, doesn't mean that we're causing them. It means they exist. For the preacher to talk about these things in a sermon doesn't mean the preacher is causing them. It means they exist. This Palm Sunday crowd called on Jesus to save them. They weren't saying Jesus caused these things. They were there before Jesus ever appeared. But they want Jesus to do something about them. Today and every Sunday, we bring our fears, we bring our darkness to church. Jesus doesn't cause these things, but we want Jesus to do something about them. Salvation and the cross are linked in Christian thinking. Salvation and Jesus' suffering and death on the cross are linked in our thinking. Here's what I think is going on on the cross. Paul says that Jesus emptied himself. 
You know, we're familiar with the story of the teacher who tried to get the student to empty himself so that the student could receive what the teacher had to offer. As long as the student was full of himself, there was no room for the wisdom of the teacher to fill the student's life. So this emptiness had to be filled. Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself of God. He was empty not to receive God, but just the opposite. He was emptied in order to receive the things that were not of God. He was empty to receive the ugliness and darkness and evil. He was there to receive and accept that which spiritually kills, that emotionally kills and physically kills us and destroys the world. His emptiness created this space in his being for him to take it into himself, to receive it and accept it. When I was about eight, a bunch of us were playing in the Our Lady of Mercy's parking lot. And we decided to take a chance and go into the woods behind the parking lot. Now, we had been told by our mothers never, ever to go into the woods behind Our Lady of Mercy's parking lot. Had nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. It was just that the woods were dark. And who knew what went on in the woods? Who knew who was there in the woods? Our mothers would kill us if we ever went into those woods. And then we went. Now, in the woods was the burned-out Sean Mansion. There were lots of rumors about the Sean Mansion. There were rumors that old man Sean had killed his family and set the house on fire. There were rumors that the whole Sean family had been killed and the killers had set the house on fire. All that was left was the chimney and then just burned out frame of the house. And we stood there in the dusk looking at the Sean mansion, scared and paralyzed with fear. You go in. No, you go in. No, you go. You go. Finally, Gary said, I'm going in. And as Isaiah would put it, he set his face like flint and walked in. He was going to face what we all feared. Gary was going to face what haunted us and scared us. Gary was going to go into the darkness. That's what Jesus does. He sets his face like flint and goes into the darkness to face what haunts us. Paul says Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus was open not just to some forms of darkness and some ugliness, but all forms of darkness and evil and ugliness. He didn't say, well, I'll receive hunger, but not abuse. No. I'll receive disease, but not emptiness. No. Even death on a cross says it's all forms that destroy us and the world. Jesus' death on a cross was his reception of all forms of evil that humans fear. It was inclusive of everything. And you know, the death on the cross, if you take the Bible story from the Garden of Gethsemane through Jesus' last words on the cross, it pretty much, it does cover everything that haunts us. Torture, desertion, thirst, pain, betrayal, humiliation, denial, suffering, shame, death, depression, loneliness, isolation, emptiness, meaninglessness. You know, we, we talk usually about the cross and forgiveness of sins. And I'm not going to deny that at all. But that's not what I'm talking about today. The cross is about more than our sins. It's about the pain of meaninglessness and emptiness. It's about our despair over life. It's about our fear of death. It's about the darkness that happens to us when what we love dies. On New Year's Eve of 1979, I was serving the church in Camden in the western part of Ohio. And I got a call from Junior Moss, the undertaker in town. And Junior said, um, do you know the, this family? And I, he named the family. And I said, no, I don't know them. And he said, well, none of us do. Their one-month-old son died suddenly last night. And they'd like someone to do the funeral service. And they don't want someone who will preach at them or quote the Bible. So I thought of you. <laughs> and he said, will, will you go see them and will you, will you do the funeral? And I said, yeah. So on New Year's Day of 1980, I drove out on township back roads to a trailer. It was a gray, drizzly day. The ground was uh, brown, a lot of wheat and corn stubble around this isolated trailer. 
<laughs> and I was reminded of the hymn we had just sung at Christmas in the bleak midwinter. Frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. This was it. There were some mangy dogs surrounding the lane around the trailer. There was clothes hanging on the line. They were frozen. To describe it, I would say it was a God-forsaken scene. I went in the trailer. It was drafty. And the parents sat there. It's one of those conversations that you just limp through. You can't talk about the Reds or the Buckeyes or the Bengals because you know that's just avoiding their pain and their suffering. And we just sat there staring at the emptiness, at their lostness in life. There was just nothing there. And I said, are you angry? I said, yes. At whom? God. Be angry. Tell God how mad you are. And I didn't say it because they didn't want me to preach. But I thought... Jesus emptied himself to receive your anger. What is grief if not looking into the emptiness and meaninglessness, the loneliness of our life? We don't seek it, but it finds us. My child is dead. My partner is dead. My parents are dead. We sit in a hospital room and the doctor has just given us the news that our cancer is inoperable. We have this sense of loss and life seems pointless. Does the cross have anything to say to that emptiness? My God. Why have you forsaken me? It's not just Jesus, it's us. As Jesus empties himself and receives all this ugliness and darkness, he's alone. God is gone. My God, you've forsaken me. He has no assurance that his dying will mean a damn thing. God is gone. He could all be for nothing. All the suffering could be with no point at all. And still, he takes that too. I hope most of you have seen the movie The Green Mile, have... have Okay, I'd expect better from that. You know, it's been on AMC almost endlessly during Lent. You know, I feel like they were showing it continuously. 
It's a story about a prison in the South. There's a prisoner named John Coffey, pronounced like the beverage, but spelled differently. He is a huge man. He's a soft-spoken, gentle giant. He is on death row for the alleged murder of two white girls. He is a black man. And there's no doubt that racism runs through this. He did not commit the murders. He is innocent. He does not deserve to be executed. It's 1939, 35. He's not going to be crucified. He's going to be electrocuted. And John has the gift of healing. In fact, he was leaning over these two dead white girls not to take their life, but to put life back in them. But the mob didn't see it that way. In the course of the movie, we learn that the warden's wife has a brain tumor. And it's affecting her thinking, her language, her memory, her speech, her body. She can't walk. She's bedridden. She's wasting away. She looks like a cadaver. Her skin is an awful gray. In a word, she looks like a hag. And the guards of the prison organized by Tom Hanks sneak John out of the prison and take him to the warden's house without the warden's permission. John knows what they want him to do. He knows what it will cost him, and he does it anyway. Now, if you have the movie or if you watch it on Amazon Prime, this is at the two-hour and 13-minute mark. John sits at the edge of the bed, and he leans over the body, and he puts his mouth over her, and he just hovers over her mouth, and he inhales, and he inhales, and he inhales, and all this stuff is drawn out of her open mouth into his and into his body. All this ugliness and disease is drawn into him. And the house shakes and the windows crack and the lights flicker. And then when he has sucked everything out, he stands up and staggers away and collapses on the floor. And he's coughing and choking and he can't get his breath. He is suffering. He's suffering for the act of taking her ugliness into his life. He has paid the price for her suffering. And the camera cuts to her in bed. And she looks 30 years younger. Her skin has this glow 
Her hair is clean and combed and full-bodied. She speaks coherently. She's gained weight. She's beautiful. And she rises from her bed and walks up to John Coffey and looks him in the eye and says, I dreamed of you. You were wandering in the darkness. So was I. And we found each other in the darkness. We found each other in the darkness. <laughs> if there's a good definition of salvation, that's it. We found each other in the darkness. We're in the darkness sometimes. And Jesus is in the darkness on the cross. Jesus is there to accept our pain, our suffering, our emptiness. We find each other. Those parents in Camden on that New Year's Day didn't want to hear about the cross and their sin and the forgiveness of their sins. That would have had no meaning to them. But the cross of Jesus in the darkness, in their darkness, to accept their pain had meaning. Why would someone empty themselves to the point of meaninglessness to receive our pain? Why would someone open themselves to another's suffering? Love is the only answer I can come up with. So that's what I think happened on the cross. Love. Christ emptying himself to receive our garbage and the garbage of the world. Love. I know this has been a hard sermon to listen to. To hear about all this ugliness. And bear in mind, next Sunday is Easter. And how does this story end? With love. What wondrous love is this? Hosanna, save us. Save us from what? You can fill in your own blank. But save us by love. Paul says, have this mind that was in Jesus. Think on this emptiness and this receiving in love of Jesus. He finds us in the darkness. May it be so. Amen.